welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. We are here with Brian Kloss today, who is a Minnesota native, earned his DPhil at Oxford, and is now a professor of global politics at University College London. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, host of the award-winning Power Corrupts podcast, and frequent guest on national television. Class has conducted field research across the globe and advised major politicians and organizations, including NATO and the European Union. And he is the author of Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters, which is what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Brian. We're so excited to have you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Brian, I can see how both reading as a, as a reader of it and I can see how writing this book uh, or really just us having a conversation about the subject could send someone down a philosophical rabbit hole. And I'm excited, as, as I was sharing with you before we jumped on, I'm excited to have this conversation because in our world, we often talk about how our action matters by way of productivity, right? Typically, we're interviewing a lot of business owners. We're inter- interviewing people who write strategies on, on, on how to have high performance as a human being. And this book has, to me, what, what could be what feel like two opposing perspectives, which is that everything that we do matters. But alternatively, we also live in a chaotic universe where there's a lot of things that are completely a, a, a fluke or chance, as you describe it. What was your, what was your inspiration for writing this? Yeah, it's that's a very good summary. So, I mean, I, what I would say is that there's a sort of personal and a professional side to the origin story of this book. The, the personal side is there's a story that starts in in the first chapter where um, a woman has this tragic story of a woman uh, having a mental breakdown in 1905 in Wisconsin, and she's got four young kids, and uh, she ended up killing all of her children and then killing herself. And and this this horrible story. The reason it's in my book is because this is my great grandfather's first wife, and he came home and discovered this entire his entire family dead. And he remarried to my great-grandmother. And I was totally oblivious to this until I was in my 20s. My dad sat, sat me down, told me about this. And I had this realization that I wouldn't have existed if this had not occurred, right? But when you start to think about this in a more detailed way, it also occurs to you that you would not be hearing my voice if this had not occurred, right? And so I think a lot of stuff around the way we think about why things happen just writes out these sort of weird, arbitrary events from the past and how we reshape our future. But you know, quite literally, my existence is predicated on a mass murder 119 years ago in a Wisconsin farmhouse. So that's that's the personal side where it's sort of you know that stuck with me, <laughs> as you as you might imagine. It's probably then, why. Is that you don't add that to your bio, Brian? Indeed, yes. Although I will say, you know, my my, my grandpa used to, he had a dark sense of humor, and he used to say, "Well, well, we're not related to her because uh, that end of the fa- that branch of the family tree ended." So um, there's there's no mass murdering genes in me, hopefully. But you know, I mean, the the, the second part of this is that I'm a social scientist, right? And, and one of the things that social science does is it tries to figure out how to navigate a really uncertain world. And the way that you do that is you come up with models, right? Now, the problem with that, and sometimes they're very useful, but the problem is that you sort of say, okay, here's like five or six things that if you do them, you can control the world, right? You can, you can avoid catastrophe because we know how everything works. And the more that I studied things, the more that I realized this was not true, that there's all these things that are out of our control, that there are sometimes very small tweaks that have enormous consequences, and all of that doesn't go into the model, right? So on the personal side and the professional side, I was both looking at this worldview where the flukes, the luck, the accidents, the arbitrary nature of change, all that was written out. And then, you know, you come up with this very, what I call a storybook uh, version of reality where everything fits together really neatly. And I just don't think that's how the world works. <laughs> so that's that's basically where the book came from. I'd be curious as someone who studies this and talks about it as much as you do, wrote wrote the actual book on it, does it give you 
stress or anxiety or pause when when you think about if everything I do matters, if I turn left over right, is it going to have, you know, consequential effect on the world? It's sort of the butterfly effect in mass. Yeah, so it's a it's a very good question because I have a, in the first chapter I have this thought experiment where I say, look, you know, when we think about traveling back in time, like you think about Back to the Future, or there's sometimes thought experiments where you travel back to you know a million years ago and you squish a bug, and the whole future is diverted, right? It changed, and maybe humans don't exist, or maybe you don't exist because you know in Back to the Future you talked to the wrong person, and so on. And like we intuitively accept this, right? That like these small changes in the past can like totally radically reshape the future. When we start to think about the present, we just pretend that's not true, right? But like everything that we are doing is reshaping the possible pathways of our existence. Now, I think the thing that you're asking is how do you live with that? Well, <laughs> I I think there's two things. One is that first off, I don't think you can change it, right? You can't control it because you don't know the ripple effects of your actions. You know, my great grandfather's first wife did not know that she was going to produce a podcast episode in 2024 through this action she made in 1905. So you can't control it. But the flip side of this is I think for, for well-being and thinking about the value of our lives, I think this is actually really empowering because one of the things that I find a lot of people struggle with in the modern world is this feeling of interchangeability, right? Or like having uh, no power because there's all these structures around them where they feel powerless within them or like AI is going to replace my job or a robot will replace my job. The nice thing about this worldview, which I think is actually the way the world works, is that everything is important. So, you know, there's no throwaway action. There's no throwaway word. It all reshapes the future, although sometimes it's very small in its effects and sometimes it's very big and we can never really know which one it is. The way you explain it makes it feel comforting and in a way that it's that it's these small actions that we can take if we take them with care can, can have a, a huge positive ripple effect. I think about in the way that we interact with people. And I, I'm sure we've all heard the story many a time where it's, you know, I was having the worst day or potentially was going to have my last day. And that person gave me a smile or an encouraging word or whatever it was. And I made a different decision because of that interaction. And to me, I go to the place of every small action that we take, interaction that we have, whatever it may be, can have an enormous positive effect on on our uh, on our experience and potentially on on the future. Yeah, so I, I think there's really that's a very good way of putting it. And I think there's a few things that come out of that philosophically, right? So one of them is that sometimes when you have uh, good intentions, you can actually produce bad outcomes and vice versa, right? I mean, the fact that every joyful moment in my life is derived from this mass murder means that. <laughs> You know, you have you have a very positive outcome for me from something that was horrific, absolutely yeah. horrific, right? And that that's one of the things that's maddening about the way the world works because there's there's sometimes good intentions that have bad outcomes, bad intentions have good outcomes. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you should try to do bad things. Of course, you know, you should always try to live a decent and normal life because you're trying to help other people and so on. But the really comforting thing, and this is what I find uh, is, is missing from our, our dialogue about these things, when you start to think about how causality fits together, right, in this sort of chain link of cause and effect that's unbroken for our entire lives, is that the worst moment of your life is inextricably linked to the best moment in your life. Hmm. They couldn't both exist unless they equally are there, right? Because the, the good moment is caused in some way by the diversion of the path you had in life by the bad moment. And I think that's really uplifting and beautiful yeah. as a comforting mentality. So, you know, I, this, this idea, I think we have this idea that, you know, there's just these discrete moments and like most stuff just gets washed out. And I don't think that's true. I think that the, the, the sort of um, the easiest way to explain this, and I, I won't go into graphic detail, I promise, but is the moment of conception 
of a child, right? Yeah. If it is one millisecond different, a different person is created. So if you took a sip of coffee that morning or didn't, it changes which person is born, right? But that goes back to the day before and the day before and the day before. And so everything in your life is this unbroken chain of causes and effects. And I think when you start to grapple with that reality, it does change your outlook and your worldview of how important your individual actions can be. Do you find that when you're conceptualizing this or explaining it to people, it really only makes sense when you look back at history? Because you give uh, some incredible stories in the book about had had this thing been different or or had this this timing been different, this person been different, whatever. There's so many great stories. I couldn't begin to go through all of them. But does it only conceptualize when you look backwards? Because you can't hope to predict the future. Yeah, so this is this is the weird thing about the past versus the present, right? Because we can't see how the present is changing the future, we never think about these. I call them the invisible pivots, right? So right. people do think about the idea of, oh, if I had not gone to this university or if I had not gone to the coffee shop this day, I went to met my spouse, whatever. Those are the visible pivots. Like we're aware that they're happening. The invisible pivots are like what I call the snooze button effect, which is you hit the snooze button or you don't, and does it change your life, right? This idea. Now, with history, it's easier to conceptualize this, and I, I can convince people of this more more straightforwardly because there's there are stories where the world pivoted on the smallest thing, and, and that's why I start the book with a story of a vacation in Kyoto, Japan, in 1926. Husband and wife fall in love with Kyoto. They they have a week long vacation there, and it, you know it's that experience of going somewhere and finding it to be wonderful. 19 years later, the husband is America's Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. And the target committee, which is deciding where to drop the first atomic bomb, picks Kyoto as their top target. And he has to have two meetings with Truman, uh, President Truman, to convince him to take it off the list. And so the immediate reason why the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima instead of uh, uh, Kyoto is because of a vacation that a couple took 19 years earlier. And then the second bomb was supposed to go to Kokura, and there was briefly cloud cover right when the bomber arrived, so it went to Nagasaki instead. And you know, this is the kind of stuff in my own professional life of thinking about social change and all these sorts of things. It's like, who would say that the reason why things happen is because of a two-decade-old vacation and a cloud? But like, that's that's history, right? That's the way it works. And, and if history works that way, then the present works that way too, because it's not like there's two versions of how the world works. It's just the same. We just think about them differently, past or present. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. It's interesting because this concept or or what I think becomes the challenge that we have as human beings living in this world uh, is that that 
the theme comes up of what if, like we can look backwards on our life and say, well, what if I had not broken up with that person or they had not broken up with me? What if I had gone to that college over that college? What if I had made a different decision? And and you go for further and talk about those invisible pivots that you already mentioned. Can you talk more about this? Because I think this is something that people could get lost in as they think about the small effects that our actions will have and the, the prediction for the future. Yeah, so I think you know, I, I think I was I was once asked the question of like, what is the, the the biggest you know fluke that has changed your life and so on, and and the point is that I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would right. guess that the most yeah, you could never moment, probably guess. Yeah, and, well, and I think there's probably been times where I almost died, right? And I, I'm not aware of them. I mean, maybe somebody fell asleep at the wheel and then woke up uh, in time to not hit me, right? I would be completely oblivious to that. But if they hadn't done that, then you know maybe I wouldn't be here and so on. I think that, you know, when, when we think about, like, I use the snooze button as a thought experiment because a lot of people figure, oh, well, yeah, okay, but like, I'll get up at roughly the same time. I'll still have the same routine and so on. But a five minute delay in your, in your day will make you meet different people that day, Mm -hmm. right? You will have different conversations. Uh, And, and those things have ripple effects. And this is the kind of stuff where, where chaos theory, I've been, I was really baffled by why chaos theory is not applied to humans as, as very often at all, right? We, we occasionally in film and so on, you do you do see this, but in in social science and in discussions of business and so on, we mostly have these like more clockwork models of change that are the visible pivots. Like, oh, here's the five variables that make a successful business. There's a lot of stuff I think when you look backwards at it that it could have gone a little bit differently. And if it had, you know, I mean, if Apple had been to the game of computing, you know, three years later, would they would they be a giant company now? I don't know, right? Timing was important. So there's a lot of stuff where I think the the things that we try to make sense of involve these very big, obvious building blocks. Like, oh, yes, of course. And we always learn backwards as well. So like if something is successful, we're like, how did they do it? Well, if it was a totally random accident that they became successful, which sometimes happens, yeah, then we shouldn't learn the lesson, right? Because, because they might have done something that was not that smart and they got lucky. Mm-hmm. And then people mimic it. And so I think there's this sort of like stitching back in time where you just – Oh, it's always a very neat thread. And I, I think the invisible pivot point moment is, is this idea that our, our, I, I use this idea of what I call the garden of forking paths. It's from a short story from 1941, but it's basically this idea that every time you step forward, the garden in front of you, the pathways change every single step, right? Now, some of them will end up in the same destination, right? You'll st- you still might end up meeting the same person and falling in love with them. You still might end up in the same job. But the pathway matters. It, it, it affects mm-hmm. the way that your life unfolds. And I think that is something that we just pretend is not true. And I think when I do talk to people, I think people actually sort of nod along and say like, okay, this makes sense. But like, I've never thought about this. And I, I, I think that's the perplexing thing about this disjuncture between the way that we think the world works. And then when we gaze at it a little closer, how it seems obvious that, of course, we're reshaping our futures constantly. Yeah, how it actually unfolds. Well, it makes me think about, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that uh, that you'll see as a co- common theme through the one thing and that we're always looking for is models. I want to find a model for how to replicate that or how to do that or how to be that, whatever, whatever it may be. And when I think about this, this almost becomes not only a model for, for how you look at the world, but also I'd be curious to hear your perspective on what's the model for making decisions knowing this. Because I, I love what you just said, which is that people don't often apply chaos theory to, to human beings. And, and I, would, I would offer that we probably are, are living chaos theory uh, because we take so many actions. And, and I'd be curious to understand how you use this to make decisions and, and what your model might be for that if you have one. 
Yeah, so basically there are, there are sort of two kinds of situations that require different models of decision making. So one of them, I, I use an analogy of uh, Moneyball, for example, which is that, that, that famous story of how to you know, sort of optimize baseball based on metrics and data and so on. Baseball is a really closed system, right? There's like very specific rules. It's the same teams every year. Yes, we don't know who's going to win the World Series, but like what we know is that like, you know, the Miami Dolphins, the football team is not going to win the World Series. There's, there's specific rules that prevent certain outcomes from happening. The real world is not like that. But if you're in a closed system with very strict rules, and sometimes businesses like this, then you might want to just optimize. You know, if, if, if you make paper clips, just make them as efficiently as possible, right? It's just going to be, there's not going to be these massive flukes that totally upend uh, your world that much. When you're navigating uncertainty, the model has to shift because then flukes and randomness can divert trajectories in ways that are consequential and can create, you know, black swan events. You mm-hmm. know, the pandemic diverted a whole bunch of trajectories very, very quickly. So when you're navigating uncertainty, what you should do is dial down optimization to the max and slightly dial up resilience, right? So the way that I would say to think about this is, you know, like there's, there's an example of an electrical grid in South America, I think it's in Chile, where they basically designed a system that is like 10% less efficient than it could have been. And that's because they decoupled all these regional networks from the national grid. But when it actually had a blackout and they actually had the system fail, which was a totally unexpected event, right? They, they, they had planned not to have this happen. But when it did happen, it was very localized and it created almost no economic damage. Whereas, you know, the flip side of this is my favorite example. This is that boat that got caught in the Suez Canal because a gust of wind hit it, Right. And all of a sudden, you have $54 billion in economic damage. It, it decreased global GDP by up to 0.4% from one boat. And the reason for that is because the system was optimized so much, there was no slack. And mm-hmm. when that fluke happened, it was like, okay, well, we're screwed. <laughs> so in, in navigating uncertainty, the, the more uncertain you are, the more you want to prioritize resilience over optimization. The less uncertain you are, the more you can prioritize efficiency and optimization over resilience. You know, this kind of makes me think of, I, I to a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Morgan Housel on his new book called Same as Ever. I don't know if, you, if you've had a chance to see it, read it, but effectively it's, it's the concept on what is now a very famous Bezos quote, which is people were constantly asking him about what are you innovating for or what's next or what's in the future? And he said, alternatively, what I'm actually innovating for is what will remain constant, what is always going to be the same. And I see a thread of that in what you're saying, because it's not saying give up because everything is fluke and, and you can't control anything. It's optimized for where you can, but give yourself enough space and thinking power to be able to pivot where you need. You can't. It sounds to me like there is an ability to over-optimize, that, that the system gets so tight, you're so strategic that you can't think of what could happen that might be a, a, a gust of wind or, or how you might be able to pivot if this randomized world event happened. Yeah, so I think this is true on two fronts. One is obviously systems around business and politics and so on. Um, which I just mentioned, but also on our own lives, right? I mean, like I look at I look at a lot of people and how they're living, and this was me as well. Like if I look back at my life prior to the pandemic, for example, um, I, I was living what I would describe as a checklist existence, right? Everything was life hacks. It was trying to always like get everything a little bit better. I think the problem with that is that you do lose a little bit of the value of navigating uncertainty more effectively because you think that you know exactly what to do, right? And everything that you make a decision around is like, okay, well, I'm going to make this absolutely perfect. Now, the reason that's not necessarily always good advice is because there's a, a lot of benefit from experimentation within uncertainty. And the the stories that I really like from, from the book that, that 
bring this out. One of them is an economic study where there was a strike that was uh, made on the tube, right? The, the, the drivers of the tube, the London subway, uh, they went on strike. And so all of a sudden, the whole city's got to find a different way to work. And these economists got data on anonymized cell phone locations. And they looked at the pathways people took, and they found that more than 5% of the people stuck with the new pathway to work after they were forced to experiment by this accidental you know, uh, inconvenience they had, because it was actually better for them. Now, some of them, it might not have been faster. It was just more enjoyable. And if they hadn't had to you know, walk a little bit, for example, or if they hadn't had to explore a different pathway, they wouldn't have, ex- they wouldn't have understood that. So you know, th- there's, there's loads of examples in innovation as well, where people who are not trying to solve a problem actually solve a problem. So one of the great examples is the Wright brothers, who were having a picnic uh, and saw some buzzards and got their idea for the plane. Or um, you know, the, the, the idea of the pendulum clock was, um, you know, there was a, 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 in a cathedral, there was a chandelier swinging from the ceiling while a person was worshiping. So you know, these, these ideas are, are ones in which I think if you have the worldview that you can control everything and optimize everything, you stop experimenting, you stop building resilience, and those things actually turn out to be really, really helpful in our modern world where flukes really matter and they can upend things really, really quickly in devastating ways. One of the things that stood out to me, and I'll ask you the same question I asked Morgan on this thread, which is that it, I think sometimes we we deal so much in what in what we do with coaching and and uh, and optimizing businesses and and corporate consulting and things like that that I could see someone listening to this, reading this, and saying, "Well, well." If we control nothing but influence everything, is everything just out of our control? Like, do, do, we, do we just give up and let nature take its course? What would you say to that person? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think we should. I mean, I think that's something, you know, humans are, are striving creatures, right? We, we always want to improve our, our world and we always want to improve our lives and so on. And that's a natural impulse that we shouldn't abandon just because we have less control than we think we do. I think the point is that if you accept the worldview that you have less control, and I, I do think this is something that's like wildly inaccurate about the way that most people view the world, which is, you know, oh, if, if we just do these four things, it will be fine, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think about my life, there's like, there's like a million things I didn't control. I mean, I didn't control when I was born, where I was born, who my parents were, how loving they were. Uh, my personality was not in my control. My brain was not in my control, right? All those things are hugely influential in my life. So- I've accepted that I have a lot less control than I think I'm, I'm sort of told within our culture, which is all about, you know, if you just do these three things and, and so on. You'll be successful and, and or I, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that this is something where, you know, that doesn't mean I don't try. Obviously, I try. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do everything that I, that I can to, to fulfill the life that I want. I think what it does, though, I think it makes you reflective more. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's a problem about the optimized existence is that you don't have to think about what you're optimizing for. And this is where the, you know, I bring the money ball thing briefly back into this because one of the things that was amazing about this was that as they moneyballed baseball and everything got more, you know, spreadsheet based and data based, the game got way more boring. And they started to lose fans because there was less uncertainty. It was like there were there were fewer exciting innings because they were able to have defense that would play based on optimization, a more yeah. effective game, lower scoring games, et cetera. And the fan base started to fall away. And you're like, okay, hold on. Baseball has forgotten what it's for. It's for entertainment, right? Yeah. And the uncer- you know, uncertainty is, is part of the entertainment. We love the idea of not knowing how the game's going to end. 
So, you know, I, I think there's stuff where when you have to think about what you're optimizing for, it creates more happiness. I think a lot of people on autopilot are optimizing for efficiency and money. And I think there's some people that that's maybe the best pathway for them. And there's other people for, for whom it's not. And I think that's where, you know, the sort of forced experimentation that I was talking about um, can really showcase that sometimes when we're pushed out of those checklists and forced to adapt, we actually find uh, better pathways forward. Well, you give countless studies about this, or excuse me, stories about this in the book. And one of the co- threads that you bring throughout the book, which I think is really important, is what you just said, which is which is that having this innovation and uh, and and sort of acceptance of of these uncontrollable events actually creates happiness. And I find this in in business that I don't know that it would relate directly to happiness. But I find that when when an organization often will we'll consult organizations that are highly, highly, highly systematized. I mean, they are, everything is dialed in. Everything's got a process. Everything's got a system. And they can't understand why they're inefficient. And what we'll come in and realize is that they are so efficient that people are getting bored and lazy and stop thinking. And therefore, uh, at their, their best players leave because people want to be challenged and they want to be fulfilled at work and or they create problems just so they can solve them. Do you see that happen? Yeah. So this is where, you know, one of the things that was really fun about researching this book is I'm I'm synthesizing, you know, history, philosophy, and also science. And, yeah. and one of the things with science is I, I looked into a lot of evolutionary biology studies. And one of the one of the things that I, I think is important for thinking about this from a business perspective is you know everything that you look at around you in terms of animal, plant life, et cetera, has been produced through undirected experimentation. Right? It's basically just random mutations that when they solve problems effectively, they survive. And when they don't solve problems effectively, they die off. Die off. And that's basically the engine of evolution. Now, when you think about that in a business context, well, if you systematize everything, you're creating a brittle process. Because you can't experiment, right? Individuals who might have an idea are thinking, okay, but I can't because there's like, there's this computer software that doesn't allow me to do this differently. And I can't think about this and everything's supposed to be by the book. So if you, you know, the, the, the sort of top-down control systems, there's a place for them in terms of, you know, quality control, whatever, like you need to make sure that you're doing some of these things. I'm, I'm not trying to say you don't, but I am trying to say that you need to build in both slack and experimentation into the system to allow people to innovate because, you know, I think this is the kind of stuff where when you look at businesses that die, and, and this does happen all the time, right? You have these businesses top performing and then they just die off because the world shifted. The ones that don't die off are the ones that have that ability for people to do some undirected experimentation. And, I, you know, I speak from personal experience as an author, a lot of, a lot of fluke. Uh, this book came to me when I was walking my dog. I, you know, I would sit at my computer and I would just be stuck. And I was like, what am I, what am I going to say? And then I would just say, you know, okay, I'm not, this isn't working. Take my dog for an hour long walk, come back and it would flow out of me. And I think that's the kind of stuff where there's a lot of uh, workplaces where they would say, this is a waste of company time and so on. But our brains are not robotic. I mean, you know, we require inspiration, creativity, and those things don't come to most people by sitting in front of a computer when they don't have an answer to a problem. So I think, you know, there's there's lessons to be learned from a lot of the natural world and how it has its wisdom shows that, you know, experimentation is the bedrock of innovation. And a lot of the experimentation I think is written out of modern life. 
Well, I think especially to your point, looking at this in, in nature is one of the most fascinating things. I mean, animals don't gripe about the way the world is. They they just evolve or or they die. It's one or the other. Right. Uh, they just they they adapt to it or or they don't make it in the long run. Um, you, you talk about so many stories and you've mentioned a few here and and there's specifically one that stood out to me, which was the red cow uh, that almost caused a wars. Can you tell that story? I'm not going to articulate it as well as you did, but I'd love for you to tell that story because I think it's such a great example of of the thread through this whole book. Yeah, so th- this is a this is a a story that is trying to illustrate the point that you know we always try to make rational sense of why things happen. And a lot of the world runs on irrational accidents that almost occur or sometimes do occur and really change things. So it's a story of uh there's there's basically a sect in in Judaism and Israel that has a belief that they need to rebuild the temple. Um, to fulfill a, a prophecy from the Hebrew Bible. But in order to do that, they need to have people purified. And according to their interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, that requires a purely red heifer, so a red cow. Now, in the distant past, there have been ones, you know, red cows, this is a very long time ago, that were certified as being fully red and so on. There was a cow that was born in 1997 named Melody that appeared to be a fully red cow. So this group got very excited about it. And they brought in, you know, some experts who could look at it and they brought a magnifying glass and they said, okay, yes, so far it is, but it needed to become three years old. And the reason this was important was because the millennium was going to be in the year 2000 and they figured, okay, this is perfect, right? This is clearly divine destiny because 1997, a cow was born at the age of three when we need to uh, actually use the cow in order to purify these individuals. That's the millennium, Right. But then right before the millennium, they went back and there was a white hair on, on the tail. And so it did not end up meeting the definition and they, uh, they abandoned the process. But the crazy thing about this is that if it had been, the plan was to basically use the red cow to purify these builders who would then have to blow up some of the most important holy sites in Islam, which would very likely spark an extraordinarily violent conflict, uh, probably much worse than what we're seeing now in Gaza. And in that instance, you'd, you'd have it caused by a system of beliefs from thousands of years ago, interpreted, interpreted in the modern world, and the birth of a cow, right? And, and, and this is the stuff where I, I look at this and I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, people like me are tasked with making geopolitical forecasts sometimes. But what, what are you supposed to do when, you know, a, a world war could potentially start based on a cow? And it's not- The color not, of a cow. Yeah. <laughs> or be prevented by one hair, quite literally. Yeah. And and one, and, the, and the wild thing is that there is there, there are groups still currently trying to breed um, cows specifically for this purpose. So this, the, you know, this historic story is not has not gone away. There's a, there's a group, um, they refused to talk to me the book. They were very polite in responding, but they said that we want, we want nothing to do with speaking to you. Um, and they're, they're, they're a group that's trying to engineer this to happen. And they're, you know, I think they're pretty open about their plans. Uh, and in the 1980s, there was, there was an attempt to um, blow up one of the uh, holiest sites in Islam, the Dome of the Rock. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff where I think, you know, when we, when we go to conferences or we talk to people or, or when I go on TV as a pundit, um, you know, basically what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to stitch together events in a very straightforward linear trajectory where these three things explain what happened. And, you know, I think these stories just sort of challenge that worldview a little bit. It doesn't mean there's like, there's no meaning in models. Of course, we should still model things and so on and think about change. It's that we have to allow that there's just a far more complex reality than we often imagine. 
how does that show up for you when you are making these predictions? I mean, to your to your point, you're you're not only making them but sharing them on on national and international television. And I find this especially when I think about uh, the specifically financial. I mean, I imagine what you do is even more challenging because it's so, it's so humanized and, and human related that it's got to be even more challenging. But when I when I look at at financial projections, I have a hard time stomaching them because at least once every quarter, one of the quote experts is predicting some type of crash. And and by the way, if they keep doing that for a consistent period of time, they will be right. And eventually what, whatever they're predicting will come to fruition because finance especially tends to be cyclical. And so I, I'm curious with what you do, especially again, because there's such a heavy human element, which to me makes it all the more unpredictable. How do you make these types of predictions? Well, it's, it's very difficult. And I think this is one of the points that I'm trying to make in the book is that we should we should make fewer of them, basically, because <laughs> uh, there's, there's a hubris to them. Right. And I so I mean, basically, I, I do have a line in Fluke where I talk about this experience of going on, you know, you're you're one of six talking heads on cable TV or whatever. And like, you know, you cannot say I don't know. And you also cannot say this might just be like an arbitrary accident. Like maybe just this like one thing happened. Like we shouldn't make that much of it because it's not actually that meaningful. Who knows? Right. You can't say that. So the the problem is you always have to come up with this narrative and it's, it's a real bias. It's a way that the world is reflected back at us. And I think, you know, economists or, or financial experts often will say like markets are reacting to blah, blah, blah. And you're like, how do you know, right? Like, this is a really complicated global economy. Can you pinpoint it on one thing? I mean, really? I, so whenever I hear that, I'm, I'm very skeptical. I think the, 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 the deeper point, though, is that. I think we should parcel out questions that we have to answer from questions that we don't have to answer. So, you know, there is uncertainty about what will work if you get cancer, right? We have a we have a model, we have a predict a probabilistic idea of what will work, but we don't know for certain that it will work for you. We still should make a guess because otherwise you will die, right? So, in this instance, we have to answer the question and we use our best guess. I don't think we need to make an economic forecast for Malawi's inflation rate in 2035. I just I, there's no reason to do that, and it's guaranteed to be wrong. And I think about you know the geopolitical or economic forecasts. I mean, all of them were wrong because of you know just thinking about the last two decades. 9/11 invalidated every geopolitical forecast. The financial crisis invalidated every financial forecast. You know, then you had things like the Arab Spring again. Then you had Brexit, Trump. You know, you had the pandemic, which obliterated every forecast in the world. And then you have, you know, now wars in Ukraine and Gaza. It's like we don't learn the lesson. I think the lesson is like it's just not there's certain things that are that are unpredictable and we shouldn't make predictions unless we have to. I think that, you know, when you have to make decisions and have to make plans, then, of course, it makes sense to model. But but doing the hubristic thing of saying the world in six years is going to be like this. I mean, it's just none of us have any idea. And we don't admit that. I think I think we should admit that sometimes. Well, and I think the beauty of what you talk about so much is just giving yourself the space to innovate when you when you have those constraints. And and by the way, you correct me if I'm wrong, since you spend your your life and career studying this. To me, this is really a muscle that you have to that you have to learn to be able to think this way. You have to learn to be able to pivot. You have to learn the resilience that you need in the face of the ever changing world. Because I, when I look up, I, I agree that we we can't we can't throw everything out and say no no models are necessary, and because nothing is predictable, then we're we're just not going to put forth effort. We have to pick the model that we're going to follow, and then we have to have the flexibility if that model no longer works, or if that business plan no longer works, or or the ability to to innovate when things aren't going according to plan as they as they don't 
Yeah, and, and this is something that, so humans have an inbuilt bias to detect patterns. And there's, there's a chapter in Fluke where I talk about this and how our brains have evolved to determine, you know, to, to basically overfit patterns to nature. And part of the, I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? So like if you hear rustling in the grass and it might be a saber-toothed tiger, it is much better to have a false positive that you run away from than to ignore it and get eaten. So there's, a, there's an evolutionary pathway through which uh, pattern detection was selected for and allowed us to survive better. But we lived in a very straightforward world in the, in the, in the distant past of hunter-gatherers, right? Like the causes and effects were very linear. They were very direct. You know, if a saber-toothed tiger comes, you might die. In the modern economy, it's not a straightforward uh, relationship like that. So it's much harder for our brains to adapt to this complexity. Now, it is like a muscle in overcoming this bias because I think one of the things that you have to really think about is – Okay, so if we if we know that this is the case, if we know that the world is more complex than, than than we have to navigate it, well, we have to sort of accept the limitations of how much the past is predictive of the future. And this is, I think, a really important point for people in business or, or finance and so on, which is that you know, this is a it's an old point that uh, David Hume, the the philosopher from several hundred years ago, said. But he said, you know, we, we can never know that the past is going to predict the future. For a long time, it's worked relatively well because we've had stable systems. But now we have such incredible change in such short timescales that if you learn lessons from even 10 years ago, that lesson might not fit the current world, right? I mean, AI is a perfect example where like the, the way that the economy works is changing literally every six months. And that wasn't true in the 1960s. So if you have a model that's based exclusively on past data and you don't exercise that mental muscle of thinking, okay what uncertainty am I actually grappling with? You'll make serious mistakes. And so I think this, this problem of uh, Hume's problem of induction is the formal term for it, but it's, it's basically saying like, you know, we, we are, we are evolved, we have evolved to believe that the past equals the, the present and the future. And that is a false assumption that sometimes is a useful one, but sometimes leads us into catastrophe. Yeah. I think my favorite chapter of, of the whole book was you're you're a social scientist by trade, and my favorite chapter of the entire book was uh, basically remind me of the chapter name, but effectively you go on through the whole chapter to say that social science is BS. So <laughs> I would love for you to expand on it because I, I I just love that you called it out in the way you did. Yeah, this is not going to make me many friends at the conferences, I'll say, but it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, the, the chapter title is the Emperor's New Equations. And it's it's not it's not trying to say we shouldn't use data by by any means, and it's not trying to say we shouldn't use quantitative modeling. I use quantitative modeling; it's a, it's a, it's a useful tool. But there's some limitations to it, and I think there's some stuff that's really bewildering uh, about this. And there's two quick examples. One of them is what's called the fragile family study, where they you know the, the sort of holy grail of machine learning and AI to solve all of our problems. These researchers said, okay, let's see if we can do this. So they took all these uh, children that were in vulnerable positions. They, they might have en ended up, you know, in, in at risk of going to prison or at risk of drug use and so on um, because they had lots of risk factors in their lives. And they wanted to predict how well they could figure out the pathway, the trajectory of these, of these various uh, children. So they had all these research teams use the cutting edge tools they could. And the answer was not very well at all. Uh, basically, all the machine learning teams did about as well as just straight up averages. Um, and, and that was really bewildering because, you know, there's some, the, the point they were making is not that machine learning is, is useless. It's not, it's obviously very useful for solving problems. It's that for some aspects of uncertainty, we shouldn't have the hubris to think that we can tame, you know, things that are often swayed by chance or, or unpredictability. And, and some of those models are problematic. Um, the, the other one very briefly is, um, 
they gave 76 research teams in this study the exact same data and asked them the same question. And I, I won't go into the details for, for now, but, but basically the problem was that in the research teams, half of them found no relationship between the variables they were studying. A quarter of them found a positive relationship and a quarter of them found a negative relationship with the same data, with the same question, right? I mean, that's really bewildering because no one was trying to manipulate the data. They were all trying to answer the question. But like what normally happens in social research is one team answers a question with data they pick, and then that becomes the accepted wisdom. And what this study is showing is like, hold on, if you reran the study 76 times, you would get this standard distribution, like a bell curve of outcomes. That you know, I, I think that's the thing that's going to rock the core of social science if people start to think about this because that's really problematic. Um, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there, the, the point is not that social science is useless. The point is that I think there is a crisis of confidence in how much certainty we can put in uh, social science models that may be not perfect at uh, actually modeling the world we actually live in. Well, I think this also goes to something you mentioned in the book about how history is written. I mean, so much of it has to do with our interpretation of the events, of the model, of the data, of whatever it is. And then how we interpret it now today has to do based off our interpretation of either that person or that time or whatever it may be. Yeah, and this is this is something there's a concept. I, I don't talk about this in Fluke much, but there's a, there's a concept called survivorship bias which is, I think, a really important concept in this regard of how we understand the past. So, you know, what evidence do we have that cavemen actually lived in caves? Well, their, their wall paintings are in caves. If they painted on trees, the trees are gone, right? So so the only, it just survived. I mean, I and you know, I live in England. There's a cathedral near where I live, and there's some stuff that's graffitied, graffiti in the sense of carved into stone that's a thousand years old. That evidence survived. Some of the stuff that was written down on stuff that was disposable or, or, or could decompose is gone. So you have this arbitrary snapshot of events. And this happens, by the way, in, in all sorts of realms. I mean, who becomes powerful has survivorship bias in it. There's all sorts of areas. And when you think about these biases, about what the data is that we have to work with, it's not the actual evidence, right? It's, it's a skewed snapshot of it based on these series of biases. So I think there's a lot of stuff. History is a perfect example of this, of course, because only one side gets written often, you know, and it's it, the, the records are often, you know, very, very biased if you go back far enough and so on into history. So, you know, I think this is the, the, the big point is that you want to learn that you should use evidence, right? Like you should use data points from the past. You should also be skeptical that simply repeating what was done in the past will create the same success in the future. That's a very big cognitive mistake. And so I think this is the kind of stuff where, yeah, like, you know, follow some advice from people who are successful. But yeah, there's survivorship bias there because there might be some people who follow the exact same advice and failed utterly, right? Yeah. But you never hear from those people because they don't go on podcasts <laughs> and they don't talk to, uh, you know, they don't go on TV and they're not famous. So there's all sorts of stuff where I, I just think that our brains are allergic to this sense of uncertainty and chaos. And it's a huge part of our world and we would be very wise to be attuned to it. I think it's a great point, Brian. I think it's so important that whether whether it be I, I find this mistake a lot in business, which is which is where I spend the majority of my time, but so so it's my it's my best reference point. And yet I see it so often that someone has a mentor or a coach or a boss that they admire and respect and they just take everything that they say as law. 
And I often will remind them that it's they might have great advice, but it's not the only advice. That might be their truth. It's not the only truth. And you have to use your cognitive abilities to assess and ask questions and, and understand that while it may have worked for them, there probably was more factors than just the one they might be referencing or just the model they might be referencing that led them to the result that they're, that, that they're pointing to as, as success. I very well said. I agree with that completely. <laughs> uh, Brian, at the end of this podcast, we always want to know what's the one thing for our listeners, what is the one thing you would want them to take away from this conversation? Yeah, I think I think I've I've covered some of the stuff around business. So what I'll pick instead is one that's that's more about thinking about our own lives. Uh, and one of the things that has come to me through um researching and writing this book is an acceptance of the limitations of the control I have. And you, you mentioned one of the lines I have in the book, which is we control nothing, but we influence everything. I think that also comes with uh, some very uplifting and comforting ideas around how, how much we should not beat ourselves up when we have a setback and how much we should not claim complete credit when we have a success, right? Um, you know, I think that we, we have less control than we think. So when we have something go well for us, that was partly built on a series of things that we didn't know about that other people were doing potentially in the, you know, in, in the background, helping us, empowering us and so on. And when we have a failure, it's sometimes not fully in our control either. And I think, you know, the American dream and some of these ideas around, um, you know, the ways to conjure up success, give us this illusion that it's all up to us. And I think that's simply not true. I think when you think uh, through chaos theory and some of the ideas that I've been talking about, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't beat yourself up. In, in terms of losing at roulette, but life has a lot more elements of roulette in it uh, than, than we imagine. So my, my advice here is to just let yourself off the hook sometimes when, when things don't go your way. I love that, Brian. Thank you so much for being here today. If people want to connect with you, where should they find you? Yeah, so I, I write a newsletter called The Garden of Forking Paths, that, that uh, same short story I mentioned before, and then uh, uh, which they can subscribe to for free. It's on Substack. And then I'm on Twitter at Brian Kloss, which is uh, my surname is K-L-A-A-S. Thank you so much for being here today. We're going to drop the book in the show notes. I'm so excited for everyone to get to read this. Like I said, it will send you down this philosophical rabbit hole, and it's a great one to go down. I have got so much value out of it. So thank you personally from me, and we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>